Good morning. It's a blessing to be with you again this morning. I'm glad. Uh, I was I was here back in December, able to preach, and I wasn't able to be here with my family. And I'm very thankful this morning to be able to be here with my family. Uh, I, I know that you've been praying for us, praying for my wife as she has uh, been undergoing treatments. I, I see her here on your prayer list in the bulletin, and and uh, we are so thankful for your prayers. It is such a blessing to have God's people praying for us and. Uh, for the first time in months, she's not in a place where her immune system is compromised. So she's able to be with me. We're able to go out together, and what a blessing that is. You turn in your Bibles with me this morning to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, right before 1 John. In fact, it's the last page of 2 Peter, so it's the page before 1 John begins, most likely. I have to work hard. I've been in, in England for seven years now, and I want to say to Peter, not second Peter. Uh, it's this, this habit. So it's, it's, I've got to actually think about the fact that I'm supposed to call it second Peter uh, here. Uh, if you'd open with me to second Peter chapter three, and we're going to read the first 13 verses together. Before we do, let's ask the Lord to help us as we study his word. Heavenly Father, we come to your word this morning knowing uh, that apart from the, the enlightening work, uh, the illuminating work of your spirit, our eyes are dim, our ears are stopped up, and we ask this morning that as we read your word, as we study your word together, that you would be at work within us, that you'd be at work in me as I preach your word, that you'd be at work in, in all of us as we hear your word and, and listen to your word, that you would Use it in our hearts and minds to uh, sanctify us. Help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest what we find here in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word... The heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, 
and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Thus ends this reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts. When Pastor Ben asked me uh, if I'd be willing to preach, and, and I looked at the calendar and I realized it was Memorial Day uh, weekend that uh, he'd asked me to preach, uh, I thought that I could preach on remembering. It's, a, it's a, a very biblical idea. It's all the way through the scripture, this idea of memorial, of remembering. Uh, when I come to this weekend, honestly, the first thing I think of isn't 2 Peter chapter 3. I, I grew up in Washington, D.C., uh, right outside of Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. Uh, I grew up in a, a fairly large church. My father was an assistant minister there, uh, and our church was uh, 70% military. So it was, a, it was a couple thousand people, but uh, about three quarters of our church would rotate in and out every three to four years because they were transferring to another duty station, uh, whatever else. So it was, it was very strange to be in this large church and have them coming in and out. And, and you know, there's some places you go. I, I ministered in a church in Mississippi where we had elders in the congregation who were fifth generation elders in that church. Uh, there, there's nobody like that in Northern Virginia. Uh, you know, and in our church, uh, by the time you'd been there five or six years, you were the you were the old folks who'd been there forever. You know, it was that that sort of uh, that sort of situation. And 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 then I went on after that to serve in the U.S. Navy for seven years. And one of the many things that these experiences uh, drove me uh, to to know is the difference between Memorial Day and Veterans Day. And and as Ian just explained so well, Memorial Day is a day when we remember those who've, who've died in service of our country, where, whereas Veterans Day is a day in which we honor the veterans among us uh, and their sacrificial service. As obvious as that may seem, people mix those up all the time. Um, now, we, we moved to Europe seven years ago, and it's different there because they celebrate November 11th, just like we do, but they don't call it Veterans Day. Uh, on the continent, they call it Armistice Day, but in all of the English-speaking nations in the world, except for the United States, it's called Remembrance Day. And actually, they don't celebrate it on the 11th of November, they celebrate it on the nearest Sunday, and it's Remembrance Sunday, and for, for the whole uh, two weeks beforehand, everybody's wearing little, you know, paper poppies in their lapels, and, and they, they buy poppies to support uh, all sorts of veterans organizations and stuff like that that they put on their automobiles and, and uh, their poppies everywhere. And, and actually, Remembrance Sunday in, in the UK is, is more like Memorial uh, Day weekend here. And, and we'll have in our service a, a time at, at 11 o'clock, just when the armistice happened in, in 1918, at 11 o'clock on the 11th day, except we do it on Sunday for two minutes. In the middle of the service, wherever you are, you stop and you have two minutes of silence. And, uh, and, and everybody across the country does that. And, um, and remembering is important. And we know that. That's why we do it as a nation. That's why we do it as, as a society. It's, it's something that is 
important. Most of us know that remembering is important. I, I bet almost all of us know this quote. Uh, we don't know who actually said it first. Churchill said it, and Edmund Brooks said it, all these people said it, but, but those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. We know that remembering is, is important. It's something that is valuable. But it's actually something that is very biblical as well. All the way through the scriptures, God keeps telling his people again and again to remember. He keeps stirring us up to remembrance, as this text says. It's, it's like Thanksgiving. It's a very uh, biblical holiday in some sense, whenever we're remembering. Did you notice what Peter said in the first two verses here? As, as I read, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. He's reminding us so that we will be stirred up to remembrance. So, so here on Memorial Day weekend, we're going to look at Peter's scripture memorial, the scripture memorial he gives us. And, and these verses I read, they're chock full of all sorts of information. We could spend all sorts of time uh, considering uh, the, the, all the things that he's talking about, the end of the world, the coming of Jesus, the, the coming like a thief in the night. There's so much we could spend time on. But this morning, I specifically want us to focus on this idea that Peter brings up of memorial, of remembering. And there's three questions I want us to ask as we look at this text. The first thing I want us to ask is, why should we remember? The Bible doesn't just tell us to remember it. It gives us some good reasons that we should remember. The, the second thing I want us to ask is, what do we remember? And then third, I want us to ask, how does remembering change things? How does remembering change things? But first, why do we remember? As we ask this, this first question, I want us to look at a, a few answers in the scriptures and in this passage. Uh, even in this, in this passage, Peter doesn't just give us one reason why we should remember. He gives us a few answers. First of all, we can answer by saying, and I think maybe this is one of the most important ones, God tells us to remember. Why should we remember? Because God tells us to remember. And, and it's not just in this passage. From the, the very beginnings of Scripture, all the way through the very end, God tells us to remember. Remembering things is one of the marks of what God's people do. God is so serious about his people remembering that four different places in the Pentateuch, twice in Exodus 13 and then in, in twice in Deuteronomy and Deuteronomy 6 and then again in Deuteronomy 11, God tells his people because he wants them to remember, they need to, to lay up or set up specific parts of the law in their heart. He, he four times has this, this phrase where he basically says that the law that I just mentioned, the, the verses that I just mentioned, lay them up, set them up in your heart and, and uh, put them on as frontlets between your eyes and bind them on your arms and, and keep them with you and remember them. And, and actually, uh, to this day, uh, you might know that, that observant Jews, especially Orthodox Jews, they'll uh, purchase at, at great cost these handmade boxes that they call tefillin or 
or phylacteries. Uh, and inside are these four passages of Scripture in Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11, and these two passages in Exodus 13. And, and they have them on them, and, and at morning prayers and at evening prayers, they have an ornate way that they'll bind them on their arms and bind them on their heads. And, and, and these passages that they were told to remember are a part of their prayers. In Deuteronomy 6, he goes so far not just to tell them to bind them on them, but to put them on their doorpost and to speak of them when they wake up and when they go to bed and when they go out and when they come in. It's something that they're supposed to remember. They're supposed to speak to their children of them, which, which ought to show us that remembering isn't just something that um, helps us to recall things. It's actually a tool that helps us to teach things as well to teach things to the next generation, to teach things to our children. Throughout history and, and to this day, we see this, and, and it's, it's a practice, and it's, it's good. I would encourage you, go to Exodus 13 and read these two passages. Go to Deuteronomy 6, go to Deuteronomy 11. Look at what God thought was so important that he told his people, don't forget this. We see the same sort of call to remember, though, every time there's a covenant in the New Testament, all the way through the, the Torah, as, uh, and, and all the way through the, the Pentateuch especially, as, as he makes covenants with his people, God tells them to remember the covenant. In, in Leviticus, he gives them this cycle of seven annual feasts that they're going to have. And these weren't just feasts because, you know, it's the time of year, you've been working for a long time, you need a day off, here's a feast. They were all connected to things that he had done for his people, and they were placed there for remembering. Passover was the most significant of these. And we all know the Passover, it was remembering when Jesus brought his people out, or God brought his people out of Egypt, and when he passed over their children when he had killed the firstborn of all of the Egyptians. We see remembrance in the sacrificial system, which show lots of other examples in the Old Testament. But it's in the New Testament also. When Jesus gave the Lord's Supper to his disciples. What did he say? It's on this table right in front of me. I was looking at it this morning. Do this in remembrance of me. It's, it's something that is, is driven into us. Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're to be remembering. That's a part of our, our regular observance. And we also see it here in First and Second Peter. So I just read these two verses in chapter 3, but actually if you go back to the beginning of 2 Peter, in chapter 1, in verse 13, Peter says, I, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. The same phrase that he used here. He's, he's telling us this book is to remind you of something. And actually in what we read in, in chapter 3 there, he says, this is now the second letter I'm writing, you beloved. In both of them, I am stirring you up to sincere mind by way of reminder. So, so Peter wrote us two books that are in the scriptures, and the purpose of both of them was to help us to remember. Remembering is something God wants us to do. So the first answer to this question, why should we remember, is because God says so. But there's a, another answer to this question. And it's the one that he gives right after he tells them to remember. You need to remember because you're going to be mocked. Now, that may not seem like the 
most intuitive answer. If I were to ask you, why should you remember what the Lord has done? Remember what he said in his word. I doubt that, you know, if you asked your children over, over lunch today or, or if you'd asked them last night before they heard me speaking here, they'd say, I bet Peter's going to say it's because we're going to be mocked that we should remember. But that's exactly why Peter says we should remember. Scoffers are going to scoff at us. We're going to be mocked or scoffed at. Stress, hardship, and circumstances we all know can move us to a place when we're, when we're under duress where we forget the big picture, where we focus on what is happening at any given moment when we're under, under pressure. Our response to stress or trial or mockery or opposition is often to get so focused on the immediate trouble that we lose sight of what we know about what's happening from a broader perspective. And, and not only do we lose the broader perspective, we also become self-focused when we're under stress, when we're, when we're under trial, when we're being mocked, when we're being opposed, rather than focusing on the Lord. And so Peter says, we must remember what the prophets said. And then we also must remember the commandments that the Lord gave us through his apostles in the gospels and in the epistles and and the other letters of the New Testament, or the books of the New Testament. Because sinful people who are looking out only for their own desires are going to come along and they're going to oppose us as a result of their sinful selfishness. They're going to, to mock us. They're going to, to make a mockery of what we believe. They're going to oppose what we believe. They're going to stand against us. And so we need to remember. Don't forget. Have you ever been faced with a, a scoffer or, or somebody who is opposing you, who made fun of what you believed, who made fun of what the scriptures taught, who made, maybe not even just biblically, maybe just who made fun of something or, or opposed something that you had worked uh, very hard at? We had an elder at uh, the church that I first served in in Mississippi when I uh, was ordained, and he, uh, by the time... I was serving there in that church was already in his early to mid 90s. He was he was very elderly and he'd been one of the elders who helped start our denomination. He uh, he was a lawyer and uh, the book of church order we have, which tells us a lot about how we uh, run a lot of what we have, uh, the the things we the things we do that has you know the the words we use when we welcome people into membership and the words we use when we uh, baptize people and, and things like that. He'd, he'd written about three quarters of it. Uh, and, and whenever there would be a debate at Presbytery or even a debate at General Assembly, and people would say, well, you know, the people who wrote this really made, made errors. They, they are not clear. None of this is, it's not clear what this is intended to mean or what it says. And, you know, here he's sitting there at General Assembly or in Presbytery and and uh, he's being mocked. And, and I remember at least one occasion, and I heard stories of many other occasions where he stood up in Presbytery. I heard that he did this at General Assembly as well. And there was this whole debate about the Book of Church Order. And he stood up and he said, when I wrote that, what I meant was... Uh, he, he maintained a, an air of calm and cool in opposition that most of us don't usually retain. 
when we're being opposed. When we're facing challenges, when we're being mocked, when we're being opposed, we usually respond in one of two ways. Either we get really flustered and nervous and we don't know how to respond, so maybe we apologize a little bit for what we said or, or we just try and get out of the situation as quickly as we can. Or uh, sometimes we get really angry and pugnacious and we're going to fight. You know, if you're going to oppose me, I'm going to oppose you too. We, we can respond either way. But neither of these is a godly response. And we're supposed to stand up for what we believe. We're not supposed to back down from what the scriptures say. But Paul says that we're supposed to stand for what we believe in, unwavering, but we're also to lead peaceful, quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. And holding these two things together is hard. So we need to remember when the mockers come, when the scoffers come. But then there's a third reason here that Peter says we should remember. And that's because God's promises that we rely on were made a long time ago. We've been, as God's people, waiting for a long while, and we don't know but that it could be quite a long while longer before we see the fulfillment of those. Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll be tomorrow. Maybe it'll be today. But it could be a long time. And, and for millennia, since the days of the patriarchs, these scoffers say, we've been waiting for the fulfillments of God's promises, and it hasn't happened yet, so surely it's not going to happen. You're just silly to believe these promises. Hasn't it been long enough for you to believe that they're not going to be fulfilled? These scoffers are going to say, and it's easy to grow weary. I don't think there's anybody who hasn't at times doubted in the face of, of those sorts of things themselves. But we need to remember. We need to be a people who have regular memorials, which is why God gave us the Lord's Day every week. It's why he, he gave us the Lord's Supper with regularity. And, and he gave us the Lord's Supper for many reasons. There's, there's many things he does at the Lord's Supper, but one of them is he reminds us of what he's done. We need to, as he tells us in his word, hide God's word in our hearts and, and meditate on it. We need to pray every morning, every evening, without ceasing. We need to read the Bible on our own. We need to read the Bible in our families. We need to remind ourselves and have these practices. We need to remember. So that's why we need to remember. And I'm sure you could come up with other reasons, but those are some of the ones we see here in this text. So what do we remember? That's the second question. What do we remember? Well, this passage has a, especially verses 1 through 7, a, a complex argument in response to the mockery of the scoffers. And, and we could spend a lot of time walking through it. But for our purposes this morning, I want us to notice three things God commands us to remember in this passage. Three things he tells us to remember. First of all, God sovereignly created and sustains and governs all things, and he does this by the power of his word. He sovereignly created all things. He sustains all things, and he does so by the power of his word. Second of all, God is a savior, and he is a judge. He has judged in the past. He has brought salvation in the past, and he did this by the power of his word. 
again. And third, Jesus is going to come back just as he has promised. He will finalize or complete his salvation and his judgment. He's saved and he's judged in the past, but he's going to bring to completion, he's going to finalize his salvation and judgment when he returns. And he's going to do all of this in accordance with his word. So his word is, is connected to all of these things. God's word is powerful. And we think of God's word often as, if I say God's word, you think of, of this. And this is God's word. I, this is God's word. But God's word is not just something we read. God's word is something that is active and living and powerful. It, it divides between bone and marrow. It, it sanctifies our hearts by the power of his spirit working within us. It transforms those who are dead into life. It, it takes those who are his people who are struggling with sin and it, it puts to death the sin in their lives. How, how do we put to death sin in our lives? No other way than by his word and his spirit. It, it's what he uses, it, it's something that's powerful and it's something that is absolutely true. It's something that can be trusted beyond our own thoughts, beyond our own inclinations, our own uh, feelings. We, we say, well, I, my conscience is opposed to that. And we've got to say, well, well, is your conscience in line with God's word? Is it informed by God's word as it's supposed to be? It's the one thing that we can trust as absolutely true. We, we read these things, these three things that Peter says in this text, we need to remember. And we see God is. It's his name that he gave to Moses in the burning bush, isn't it? I am. God is. And, and we know this, Peter says, because we're here. Because he created all things. We know God is. He, he created and he threw the waters uh, created the earth and everything that is in it, he says in this text. And so we know that God is. And then we see also that it isn't just that God is. It's not this, this deist God that, that Unitarians and others have believed in the past who was the clockmaker God who just kind of set things in order and then let them go. He is a God who, who is sovereign in creating, but then also in, in sustaining by his works of providence all things that, that come to pass. So he is a God who is a judge. And what do we see? But that in the former days, in the days of Noah, he, again, through water, judged his creation that had come into sin. So we know that he is. We know that he's a judge who has judged in the past. And because he's somebody who's created and who sustains and who is powerful, we know that he has said that he is going to come and judge again, and he will. He's the God who created, and he's the God who judged, and he is the God who still is and will do what he has said. But when we think about this, we realize that he's also a savior. Why do we know about the flood? Well, it's because Noah survived it. If nobody had survived the flood, we wouldn't be here, and we certainly wouldn't know about it. So God is a savior, and he brought Noah, and and his sons and their families through the flood. So he judged, but he also saved. And he's, he's promised that the day of the Lord will come, and it's going to be a day of salvation for those who believed in him. 
The day of the Lord coming is a day of judgment, but it's also a day of of awe, of delight, of, of glory. And, and depending on your relationship to the Lord, the day of the Lord is, is a very different thing. It's, it's a blessing, a, a day of salvation, but a day of judgment for those who are not in the household of faith. And so Peter is saying here, the scoffers, ones who, who mock God's promises that haven't yet been fulfilled, they're wrong. And when we struggle, and every Christian struggles with times with doubt, it's been a long time, and I'm going through really hard things, and he doesn't seem to be there, and, and where is the Lord? Go back to this, and we realize we're wrong. We remember what God has said. And then there's one other thing here that actually I think is connected to salvation that Peter tells us that we need to remember. Besides those three things I've already said, what do we need to remember? It's the reason that it has been so long. I'm sure at times, if you've been a Christian for very long, you've thought about what you believed, you listened to sermons, you've read the Bible, you've thought about Jesus' return, and you thought, why hasn't he come back yet? Why hasn't it been so long? And Peter here, amazingly, tells us exactly why. It's been a long time since God made his promise to Adam and Eve in the garden. Eve watched that serpent tempt her and then felt the consequences of that. And God said, you know, I'm going to crush the head of that serpent. And he's uh, through a seed that comes from you. And, and the serpent is going to bruise his heel. And it has been a long time. It's been a long time since he made the promise of heavenly salvation to Abraham, since he made the covenant with David to send a king who would sit on his throne forever, who would govern in perfect equity and, and, in, and, in, and in glory and justice and fairness. It's been a long time since Jesus told his disciples, I'm going away. I'm going to give you my spirit, but I'm going to return. It's been a lot longer for us than it has been for Peter's first readers, the ones who read this letter the first time. So why has God waited so long? Well, Peter says, God has waited so long because he's patient toward us. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God waited. If you trust in the Lord today, God waited. He didn't come back the generation after Peter because he was waiting for you. He, he was patient so that you might come to repentance. So that you might be his child. And how amazing is that? How much terrible rebellion has God forborne? How much has he been long-suffering through and patient through? It's truly remarkable. Think of all God has put up with when you read Judges and First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and the Gospel. He came to his own, but his own rejected him. Church history. He's gracious and he's merciful. His steadfast love endures forever. So do we live lives of repentance? If he's been patient and waited so that we might repent. You know, Martin Luther said in the first of his 95 theses that he nailed on the door 
When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Are we repenters? Are we patient to others who need to repent like our Lord was to us? Finally, though, and, and very briefly, the third question we must ask is how does remembering change things? These things are important enough that we must remember them. The same things Peter tells us to remember. Uh, God created, God judges, God saves, and he's coming again. This is why there are these verses in the Tephilim or the, the phylacteries in Exodus and Deuteronomy that they point to. But if they're so important to remember, how does remembering change anything? Well, there was, it should change our lives. There was a, a famous, well-known and gifted violinist in the late 1800s and uh, the early 1900s. His name was uh, Fritz Chrysler. And he was from Europe, but he, most of his career was here in the United States. And apparently he had an incredible talent. He, he had, even at a very young age, he was so technically superior to everyone else uh, that the greatest violin teachers in Austria and, and Hungary and other places all over Europe said that he was the greatest talent they'd ever seen. And he had an incredible technical proficiency. And, and yet when he began playing for audiences, he got critiqued all over the place because he was technically proficient. He was an incredible violinist, but he wasn't an artist. He, he didn't understand the heart of the music. And apparently those who knew the music, who listened, just said he's, he's capable, but he's not a musician. He's just technically proficient. And so he initially flopped. And and he went back to study again, and he went off to war, and he went through all of these hard things, these difficult times, and his life was hard. And, and later in life, after all sorts of, of terrible things in his life, they were used to, to bring him to a place where he became a great musician, not just technically proficient. And he became very famous. And, and at one point, uh, the story is told of a woman who came up to him after a concert late in his career and said, I would give my life to play as beautifully as you do. Apparently, he looked at her and he said, I did. And, and when we give our life to something, when we remember all of our lives, the things that God teaches us to do, it changes us. It, it has an effect on us. The scoffers are coming. They're all around us. They're going to be in all of the last days. Jesus hasn't come back yet but it's because he doesn't wish that any should perish. And God teaches us something here, which I've already alluded to, which is that we need to be people who are repenting. We need to be people who are stirring others up to repentance. And, and maybe you say this morning, well, I've repented. I'm, I'm a believer. I'm come to the Lord. I've confessed my sin. I've repented. But we all know that Christians carry around all sorts of guilt and shame, secret sins, laziness, lust, anger, fear, anxiety, doubt, gossip, slander, self-absorption. So maybe it's the time now for us to repent. In fact, I'll tell you, it is the time now for you to repent. It's like Luther said, the whole life of believers is to be a life of repentance. But maybe also now is the time for us to be the tool that God uses to bring others to repentance. 
maybe we've shied away from <laughs> preaching the gospel, evangelizing those in our lives. Maybe it's people close to us and we're worried about what the response would be and we've been shy or nervous about that. We've been ashamed as the, of the gospel, as Paul says. Jesus is coming back. We know he's coming back. But does it change the way that we're living today? And Peter is here saying it should. And it should so much that he wrote two letters telling us to do that. Let's close in prayer.